Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting November 19th, 2008. I'm Steve Mursky. This week we'll hear from a couple of veterinarians who deal with animals a bit more exotic than the family pet. Jeffrey Bohm runs the Marine Mammal Center in Sausalito, California, and Alyssa Harley-Newton is a pathologist with the Wildlife Conservation Society's Global Health Program. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. Jeffrey Bohm recently became the executive director of the Marine Mammal Center, which will be featured on an episode of NOVA that airs November 25th. He spent 16 years at the Shedd Aquarium in Chicago, where he was Senior Vice President of Animal Health and Conservation Science. Bohm was passionate Passing through New York this week and dropped by Scientific American. Dr. Bohm, great to talk to you today. Well, it's excellent to be here, Steve. Tell me about the Marine Mammal Center. What is it? What do you do? The Marine Mammal Center is, in basic terms, a hospital for distressed, sick, injured seals and sea lions along the central California coast. And there are tons of them. Well, there, there are plenty. We have typically 600 or so patients a year. A high water mark, if you will, is about 1,200 patients that we saw one year back in 1998. But um, year in, year out, we're seeing patients coming in from the well, literally year-round. But we start to see um, an influx in the late winter months, early spring months, all throughout the summer, starting to decline a little bit uh, come fall. When you say you see patients coming in, uh, I've heard of stories where the, it, somehow the word gets out in the animal community, and it, there's some kind of rehab center, and some of them just start showing up when they're sick. They're lining up with their medical cards. No. <laughs> but uh, but how do most of them wind up there? Right, right. It's a great question. So if you if you imagine any anyone who's on a beach or at a marina or at a wharf, who happens to see a California sea lion or a harbor seal, and this is um. You know, we're, we're centered in Sausalito, if you, so if you think 100, rather uh, 300 miles north and 300 miles south of us, so up to Mendocino County and down to San Luis Obispo County, lots of coast, lots of varied coastlines. So you have very populated areas, very rugged, very rural areas. But people encounter these animals commonly. Often they're encountering perfectly healthy animals. But from time to time, they're seeing an animal that clearly is in distress or to their mind, need some attention. And that's where we start to get involved. Typically, what we'll do is we'll avail ourselves of our 800-person volunteer crew. And this is a phenomenal number of people who are committed to working with us, often in these remote, remote locations. And they'll be our first responders. They'll get out there, get their eyes on the animal. Often, what we need to do is just monitor that animal. And as we get um, more and more friendly with our coastlines, we're finding ourselves overlapping with uh, communities of these wild animals more and more. So these uh, these close encounters happen often. Typically, uh, a situation will occur where we just need to watch the animal. It will get back into the ocean. We'll find its way back to its rookery or back to an area that's a little more remote on its own. But if we need to, we have vehicles that we can deploy safely, uh, pick the animal up off the beach, and then bring it um, to the Sausalito Hospital. On its way, if it's in the southern part of our range, it may stop at San Luis Obispo or at um, uh, Moss Landing in Monterey County, where we have two triage centers with staff and volunteers. But the whole focus is providing the best care for that animal. As I say, sometimes the best care is just monitoring it, but sometimes these animals really do need a hospital setting, and that's when we'll bring them into the center in Sausalito. 
Real quickly, uh, mm-hmm. sea, difference between seals and sea lions, ears are in there. What, right. what is it for right. people? The easiest thing, and this is hokey to say, but the easiest thing for me is to have people uh, imagine the storybooks from when they were a kid or that zoo encounter where you see a, a seal, in quotes, with a ball on its nose. That's typically a California sea lion that people will bring to mind. Uh, so that that is an eared seal, uh, a sea lion. Um, the... Um, Distinguishing characteristics are the long four flippers, the ability for those animals to rotate their hips up underneath them and actually walk on all fours. Right. The um, elephant seals, the harbor seals that we see don't have that external ear flap, and they also tend to undulate along on their bellies <laughs> right, more right. than to come up on all fours. Because they probably can't. They're so huge. Well, it's it's size, but it's also just um, morphometrics and, and uh-huh. morphology, I should say. So right. they, they just don't have the ability to... To come up on all fours, they have short, more stubby four flippers, right. um, and don't have the the agility that a California sea lion or a stellar sea lion would have up on land. Okay, yeah. Now you mentioned the uh, the classic image of the, the sea lion balancing right. the ball, right? But that brings up the point that these are really intelligent animals. So, what is it like working with these animals in a in a physician patient relationship? Right. When, you know, they can't really communicate, but they're much smarter than most animals that most vets are dealing with. Yeah, I have an interesting perspective on this because I trained as a vet, but I also, um, on my way into veterinary school, worked at an aquarium at SeaWorld in, in, in San Diego. So I trained sea lions as well. And I, and I can tell you they are bright. They, they are wily. Um, they're quite intelligent uh, animals. And it's it's a fascinating piece of the puzzle but it's also a little bit of a challenge for us in the in the rehabilitation community sea lions specifically the california sea lions and the stellar sea lions that we see have a tendency to habituate really quickly so as we as you discuss kind of the physician patient relationship that's a relationship that we really want to manage quite carefully with those species the problem is that they get so familiar with us and they put two and two together quickly and they realize that, hey, this isn't a bad deal. These folks are nice. They're friendly. They're coming in with buckets of fish. I mean, that's why they're so easy to train. This is an easy life, right? And so if, if our success story is taking these animals in, appropriately caring for them, and then bringing them back out into the ocean and releasing them, that gets hampered when this relationship gets strong and when they make these connections too well. So they'll find themselves up on beaches poking their noses into picnic baskets or, more detrimentally, following fishing boats where they run into all kinds of problems. So we have this kind of repeat offender effect mm-hmm. where we'll take in classically, we, we tend to see, as an example, California sea lion yearlings. So the natural history there is that uh, mom will give birth. She'll nurse that, that sea lion pup. When he's three, four, five months old, he'll start um, decreasing his nursing, fishing on his own. Come to the one-year birthday mark, she's been pregnant. She's delivering a next the next year's pup. She boots the first one out, and that animal is either um, ready to farewell on its own or not. If not, they tend to come into a facility like ours. And at that age, we tend to see um, often these animals imprinting or habituating um, um, in a profound way. And within three weeks' time this past summer, we had one animal come back to us three times. And they get to a point where they're simply not releasable. And that's not a success story for us. Ultimately, we find appropriate homes for those animals. But sadly, the appropriate home in that case is not the wild. The study of what's going on with these animals 
has to have some kind of a larger context. I mean, when you're, Absolutely. if you're seeing these sick animals, that must be a sign of some kind of environmental issue. Yeah. The, the, the way we tend to put it is that, um, our first focus is, is the patient, the individual. What's going on with this animal? How can we address its needs in the most humane way? Hopefully caring for it and releasing it. Sometimes not. Stepping back from that a, a level, there's an enormous amount that we advance in, in the realm of science by working with these animals. In its simplest terms, we're amassing data on what is normal and what is abnormal for these animals. The Marine Mammal Center has been in existence since 1975, and we have a decades-long collection of samples in, in our um, a tissue bank. So we have blood samples, we have tissue samples that go back decades. That's a resource for scientists in the future, the needs of whom we, we, we don't even know yet. Um, but it's going to be a great library, a great resource for us. Um, right now, we're learning things every year as we, as we work with these animals. We're seeing syndromes emerge. We're seeing diseases manifest. And we're starting to try to understand uh, what's presented to us in this one patient, how it fits into what's going on with the population and how that population fits into the bigger environment. And the fascinating thing for many of us is that we're finding that that ultimate question surfaces a lot of connections between people and that environment. Not surprising when you, when you think about it. I mean, we're all reliant upon a, a healthy planet, healthy oceans. We rely on the same fisheries that these seals and sea lions rely upon. So some of the diseases that manifest in these animals that solely eat fish well, we'd be wise to watch these and and to follow them to see if there's any hint of uh, an impact on us, the selfish argument, but also an impact on the environment in a more general sense, a more altruistic and, and bigger picture way of looking at it. Let's talk about some of the specific diseases. You're seeing sure. this domoic acid situation. What is that? What occurs is that as um, normally uh, present algae matures, it elaborates a, a a toxin, domoic acid. Why, we don't know, but it's present. As small animals ingest that algae, they ingest that toxin. doesn't appear to have any ill effect on them. Small fish then consume those smaller animals, smaller, whether they be fish or crustaceans or whatever they might be, and it goes up in the food chain in a biomagnification kind of process. So it's getting concentrated right. in much higher levels than in the original algae. Exactly. So you see a top predator like a sea lion, relying on on these fish as its sole food source, and they can sometimes be getting these significant loads of this toxin. This this first became evident to us back in the late 90s when we saw this enormous influx of animals present to us, but also an array of signs and symptoms that were uh, dramatically different than what the center had seen in, in years prior. Um, primarily um, uh, seizure activity, um, some abortion from, from pregnant animals that were aborting fetuses. And as we started to look into it, um, this whole uh, syndrome of this domoic acid toxicity became apparent. What happens is that the, the toxin mimics a normal neurotransmitter in the brain. Uh, where the receptors are for that neurotransmitter happen to be um, really focused in a concentrated way in a part of the brain that has to do with mental mapping, the hippocampus. And over years, this is many years in many cases of looking at this, um, we're finding that um, there is chronic changes to the brain of these California sea lions that uh, implies damage to the hippocampus 
and leaves these animals unable to navigate out in the wild. Best example is an animal that um, had chronic domoic acid um, poisoning was was released and uh, had a satellite tag on it. These are animals that come up on the shore and rest in rookeries uh, overnight. This animal made a beeline towards the Hawaiian Islands. Um, not a normal behavior for these animals. Uh, notorious in, in our part of the country are stories of California sea lions appearing upriver in, in small towns that uh, they have no business being in. Um, uh, very notorious an animal um, took up um, residence on top of a California Highway Patrol car. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a bit comical, but it's, it's, but it's, it's obviously right. tragic. Right. Um, the same toxin is something that affects people, and it's amnestic uh, seafood poisoning. Uh, we are not typically ingesting fish with the frequency or with the with the volume that a California sea lion is, but uh, we're uh, we're an organization like uh, many of our peers that collaborate extensively. Some of our collaborators around something like this are MD neurologists who are interested in in understanding the the impact of this toxin on the brain, understanding seizure activity in sea lions. And so a a, a wealth of um, studies has been spawned by this as we try to get a handle on what's going on out in the ocean, what's changing. Was this occurring in in great numbers before we were watching? Um, How do we understand what the implications are as as we look to the future? What's the, um, what are the reasons that this algae might be, uh, growing in, in a, a more prodigious way now compared to decades ago. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the nutrient loading from, you know, a, a, a heavily agricultural state and, and the effluent going out into the ocean, what is that changing in the dynamic? What are the um, kind of the epidemiologic factors that, that paint the picture? Where, where are we seeing these animals show up? Um, is it hitting specific gender, you know, one gender more than another, one age class more than another? All of these, all of these um, questions are answered by keeping meticulous records and looking at these things long term over over many years. But that that's just one disease entity that we we tend to see. Another of interest, especially as we draw the line and connect the dots between these animals and humans, is an incidence of cancer in California sea lions. So close to 18%, just under 20% of the uh, adult California sea lions that we look at post-mortem. So it's a you know, small class of animals within the population of animals that we see. Um, we see an incidence of, of cancer in. It's a urogenital uh, cancer. And what happens is as that tumor grows, it then spreads to the lymph nodes in the region, eventually paralyzing the animal um, and leading to its its stranding on the one hand, but but certainly its its death. This is this is a situation where when I talk about our rate of success, an animal like that that comes into the center is one that we will pretty quickly upon diagnosis make the decision to humanely euthanize. Um, but why are they getting this cancer? Um, and again, have they been? Is this a, a steady state or is this an uh, an uptick? in the incidence of this cancer in these animals. Are there uh, uh, genetic factors that contribute this to this? Are there levels of toxins, PCBs, et cetera, in their blubber that might help us understand a correlation um, between uh, pollution uh, and cancer in these animals? Any leads yet on, on why the frequency is so great? Well, that is the, um, the suspicion now is that there is a link between um, 
the exposure to uh, pollutants mm-hmm. and and the cancer. But it's it's again it's it's a bit speculative, and that's a that's a challenge as you know well of of uh, studies like this that are um, basically playing out um, dependent on animals that we encounter. So it's it's years before we're able to see um, you know a, a really clear picture uh, emerge. But is there a um, is there a genetic predisposition among the species or um, uh, any other factors that might contribute to it? We're, we're still looking at that. These are not, uh, most of these species are not endangered that you're dealing with. So what's the, what's the big picture of why, why do this work at all? If, if these individuals can't make it, the species is still in pretty good shape. Right, excellent, excellent point. At the Marine Mammal Center, we see California sea lions, harbor seals, and elephant seals. And while elephant seals saw a decline decades ago, they're doing really well now. So, from a population number point of view, we see a lot of problems out there, but their population numbers are, are sustained fairly well. And so, the obvious question is, well, why are you putting all this effort into it? And uh, the the answer is in three parts. First of all, it's it's the right thing to do. It's the humane response. It's the ethical thing to do. When you see an animal in need, we provide a, a place that can address that need. Beyond that, though, the, the information that we gain from a scientific point of view by assessing these animals, collecting data, sharing that data in, in scientific journals and in publications is tremendous. And an organization like ours has has really made a mark on on advancing the clinical care of these animals, but also the scientific research. Finally, by working with all of these animals that that do have robust numbers, we learn an awful lot that we can apply to species that aren't in such great shape. And two prime examples on on certainly on on the west coast and into the Hawaiian Islands is the stellar sea lion population, which is um, further up the coast from us, more typically on, on, on the west coast of North America, a uh, population of animals that, that's in, in uh, great decline. The uh, California sea lion is an excellent model for that. So the work that we do with California sea lions and have done for decades informs our work with stellar sea lion pups, where releasing every individual really does make a difference, not just obviously for that individual, but for the population. The Hawaiian monk seal in the Hawaiian islands is a, is a population that's down to about 1100 animals. We currently have volunteers that are working in Hawaii with a pup this, this year right now. And, um, that work that we're doing with that Hawaiian monk seal pup, we wouldn't be able to do had we not had decades of experience with elephant seal pups and harbor seal pups, understanding what their nutritional needs are in the early weeks as they mature and ultimately taking them off of a, a formula and putting them onto um, solid food. We've, we've got a great expertise in that that we're able to share. But none of that would be possible if we weren't doing this work with kind of the bread and butter patients that we see. For more on the Marine Mammal Center, visit www.tmmc.org. The PBS program NOVA features the center on their November 25th episode called Ocean Animal Emergency. The center has a new hospital opening in June 2009, which will include a necropsy room visible to the public. A necropsy is an animal autopsy, so it's a rare opportunity to see wildlife pathologists at work. Alyssa Harley-Newton is a wildlife pathologist with the Wildlife Conservation Society. She's based at the Bronx Zoo and gave a public talk November 6th about how wildlife vets unraveled a human disease mystery. Here's part of that talk. 
The WCS is really dedicated to the health and well-being of wildlife, both here in our collections and abroad. And while we work in many ways to protect wildlife, one of our really critical roles is as disease investigators. And I'm a pathologist, and usually when I'm asked to describe my job, I tell people it's like CSI Bronx Zoo. <laughs> you know, we're, we're disease detectives. It's just that, you know, our criminals are very, very small. And this has led to some really exciting disease discoveries in the 21st century. One of these discoveries actually came just because of our role as disease investigators for the living institutions, which is the four zoos in the aquarium here. One of our jobs is to investigate the deaths of any wildlife that we find on zoo grounds. And we do this for a number of reasons. We do this to protect the animals that are in our collection. We do this to protect the health of the people who come and visit our zoos. And we also do it to sort of keep ourselves in contact with what kind of diseases are important to New York wildlife. And as many of you will remember, in the late fall of 1999, there was a disease outbreak that began here in New York City. For us, it began in the city zoos, and particularly the Queen's Zoo, where they were finding lots of dead crows on zoo grounds. But it didn't actually stop there. Over the next few weeks, from August through September, 27 wild and exotic captive birds either became ill or were found dead. And these were birds from eight different orders and 14 different species. And most of the animals that were sick ahead of time showed neurologic signs, so there was clearly something wrong with their brain. When we took tissues, what we saw was really severe inflammation. All of these birds had this. They had encephalitis. So here's what's interesting. At the same time that we had all these birds dying of encephalitis, there were a lot of really sick humans in New York City who were also suffering from encephalitis, and it had been identified as St. Louis encephalitis. So that, of course, begs the question, well, we've got all of these sick birds and all of these sick humans. Is it the same thing? The trouble is, is that the species that we were seeing sick, the species of birds, don't get St. Louis encephalitis. So either we had two viruses running amok in New York City that caused sort of the same symptoms, or the identification of St. Louis encephalitis was actually incorrect. Tracy McNamara was the head of pathology at the time, and she was absolutely convinced that the birds and the humans had to have the same disease. And actually, with the help of the Army, who supplied us with this lovely biosafety cabinet, which is always wonderful when you're dealing with some new virus that you have no idea what it's going to be, really took this investigation to the next level. And what she did is she submitted our samples to have the virus cultured and then to have it genetically identified. And when you when you have those moments on um, those crime shows where they say, well, you left your DNA behind at the crime scene. So this was the criminal that was responsible for the deaths in all of our birds. And that was West Nile virus. As soon as we made this identification... Samples from the humans that were actually sick in New York City were compared to the virus that we had isolated at the zoo. And that's when they found out that they were the same virus and that this identification of St. Louis encephalitis had actually been incorrect. So this was a really critical discovery for us for wildlife because clearly there's wildlife species that are excruciatingly sensitive to this virus and it could potentially affect their, the population. Obviously, this was a really critical discovery for humans. West Nile virus had never been seen in the Western Hemisphere before we identified it here in New York City. It was also important to domestic animals. The virus that we isolated from a flamingo at the Bronx Zoo was actually used by Fort Dodge to create the animal vaccine for West Nile virus. So any of you who vaccinate horses for West Nile virus, it was generated from the virus that we found in our flamingos at the zoo. This also just demonstrates sort of the critical role that wildlife disease surveillance can, even on a basic level, 
can have on the health of all of us, because it was only through this routine surveillance that we found this virus when it first emerged right here in New York City. The overlap between animal health and human health is actually, it's quite great. Now it's time to play totally bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, the new animal leaping champion is the spittlebug, found to be able to jump 100 body lengths. Story two, after almost being wiped out a century ago, over half a million bison now roam free across the U.S. Story three, solar power meets shade conservation. A study finds that having less than 20% of a house in heavy shade can cut electricity usage by more than 10%. And story four, some of the compounds in marijuana may actually help memory. What was I doing? Oh, time's up. Story four is true. Ohio State researchers think that specific compounds in pot can be good for the aging brain by reducing inflammation and possibly even stimulating the formation of new brain cells. They presented these findings November 19th at the Society for Neuroscience meeting in Washington, D.C. Alzheimer's disease appears in part due to inflammation, so the development of legal drugs for dementia could come out of marijuana research. Marijuana's THC thus joins nicotine, alcohol, and caffeine as agents that have shown some protection against inflammation in the brain that might translate to better memory late in life. Story three is true. Researcher David LeBand of the Auburn University School of Forestry and Wildlife Sciences found that heavy shade coverage on just 17.5% of a house could cut electricity usage and costs by 11.4%. That's compared to a house with no shade. Late afternoon shade and heavy foliage are the house keys to cost cutting. And story one is true. The spittlebug can jump 70 centimeters, which equals about 100 body lengths, better than a flea. The finding was published online in the journal BMC Biology. The insects use a catapult mechanism. The slow contraction of a big bank of muscles stores energy in an elastic internal structure, which is then released in less than a millisecond to power the explosive extension of the hind legs. Spittlebug's previous claim to fame was the ability to blow bubbles out of its rear end. All of which means that story two about half a million bison roaming free in America is totally bogus. We do have half a million bison, but almost all of them are on ranches. Just 16,000 free-ranging bison live in North America. The Wildlife Conservation Society wants to up those numbers in part in a way that may surprise you. Kent Redford is vice president for conservation strategy at the WCS, and he says, quote, one road to bison conservation may be a pragmatic market-based approach, namely to grow sustainable markets for wild, free-ranging bison meat, end quote. So for your next barbecue, try some bison. Tastes great, and it's good for them. Well, some of them. Well, that's it for this edition of Scientific American Science Talk. Visit Siam.com. For all the latest science news videos and our family of podcasts, including 60 Second Psych and 60 Second Earth. For Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 